I'm Mark Summers. I teach American history up on the 17th floor, Patterson Office Tower. Uh, I wave my arms a lot. I show lots of pictures. I play music. I even try to get students to sing along, but it, it doesn't work very well. And I am registered to a political party, but I'm not going to tell you which one. Yeah, I'm sure. So, what can I tell you and what do you want to know? Oh, that is a very long list, Dr. Summers. <laughs> okay. Um, All right, then narrow it down to the first. stuff you don't want to know, and I'll tell you everything else. From the University of Kentucky, it's a long story short, a brief history of history. I'm David Cole. Voting is an inherent part of our democratic system, but do you do it? In most cases, only one in every two of our listeners might vote next November, and that's only if it's a presidential election. Voter turnout plummets without presidential candidates. But this wasn't always the case. In 1876, 82% of the U.S. population showed up at the polls. In 2012, only 55. Should we blame the Electoral College? Should we blame the Founders' intent? Should we blame the rise of money in politics? Or should we blame you? Today on our podcast, producers Dara Vance and Cody Foster talk with historian Mark Summers about the brief history of the vote. What they find may mean more about the power of the vote than the vote itself. This is history worth knowing. And now, over to Dara and Cody. So instead, what I'm more interested in knowing is whether or not my vote counts. Mm. Well, actually, everybody's vote counts when it comes to that, uh, at least for the time being. It just depends, really, on uh, which party you vote for and whether they win. If, in fact, your party loses, then as far as the Electoral College is concerned, your vote doesn't count. You might as well not have voted because it's a winner-take-all system. And has been ever since 1842, uh, which is kind of a drawback to those who happen to be in the minority. Uh, but that that's sort of the way the system runs. But how, so how does, the, how does 2000 fit into that? How does 2000 fit in? Well, your vote, you know, if you were if you were in Florida, your vote certainly would have counted. If you're in a state that is very narrowly contested, your vote is vital. But if you're in a state that's very heavily for one side or the other, and then your vote doesn't count as much. Speaking as a Floridian, though, I'm not sure I feel like my vote in Florida counted in 2000 because I feel like Catherine Harris's vote counted a lot. Oh, clearly, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. It, you know, the question isn't in in many cases. The question isn't who cast the votes; it's who counts the votes. Uh, it's the counters that make the result. So, a typical election, if there mm-hmm. is such a thing. We go to the polls, we cast our votes, and then these votes are tallied. But what are we voting for? Because we're not a direct, we don't have a direct election. Uh, not for president, no. You don't have a direct election for president. You're voting for a set of presidential electors. And the truth of the matter is that those electors, if they want to, can vote for just plain anybody. Uh, they're committed, supposedly, to a party, but you, you know, once the electors get in that electoral college, they, they can choose anyone else they please. For example, let's say you vote for somebody for president, 
and that somebody dies, say, you know, from delight or surprise, having just been elected to the presidency. Uh, so, I mean, what are you going to do? The members of the Electoral College can't vote for a stiff. That just doesn't work. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's not going to, not, not for somebody who joined the choir invisible. So what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to pick somebody else to vote for. And it may be somebody who was never campaigned for in the first place. And this actually happened uh, in 1872. Because in 1872, the Democratic candidate for president, uh, Horace Greeley, was so badly beaten that he died within about a month of the after the election and died in a lunatic asylum, as a matter of fact, which is probably where he should have been for some time before that. It had uh, nothing to do with the um, overgrowing chest hair that was pouring out of the top of his his collars, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is kind of wonderful. It looks as if somebody had a beard and then tried to find somebody that it could fit on, and he had a nice round face and there was enough room for it. He's a, he's a remarkable figure uh, in his own way. Sad, sad character. Uh, here, here's a man who is being run by the Democratic Party, and the thing he's most remembered for in relation to them is a statement that while not every Democrat is a horse thief, every horse thief is a Democrat. Well, I suspect he probably got the horse thief vote in 1872, but it wasn't <laughs> enough to elect him. Uh, and it was, a, it was a ferocious, ugly campaign. As Greeley said at one point, he didn't know whether he was running for the presidency or the penitentiary. Uh, well, in any case, he, he, he didn't win either one of it came to that. I mean, just terrible uh, campaign, ugly and vicious. And when it was over, he felt as if he'd been really personally repudiated by the American people, and he was deeply unhappy about that and and his mind gave way and he ended up going into an asylum and a sanitarium and, and dying there just about the end of November well this causes a problem who then do you vote for in the electoral college well um, most of his followers voted for the for the recently elected governor of Indiana who whatever else he was was a democrat and whatever else he was no one had said anything bad about because uh, he hadn't been running for president so it's it's a problem that way so in the, in that sense your vote counts only if the electors do what they're supposed to do well who are these electors well the electors are people that each party decides to put up uh, as their representatives they represent the number of senators and congressmen that that state happens to have. And and the effect of that is that this entire slate, all in one, is going to be what you're voting for when you think you're voting for president. Uh, and uh, usually those electors are going to abide by the decision of the party and they're going to make the choice, but it doesn't, doesn't have to work out that way. And, and so that's who they are. But originally that wasn't what the founders intended. What the founders intended by an electoral college was that the legislatures or the people or somebody would choose a whole large number of wise men who would get together and decide who the best person for president was. And it would be maybe bipartisan, maybe it'd be nonpartisan, and, and they would always choose a statesman. Trouble is that anybody that's paid attention to politics knows that finding statesmen in politics is, well, you know, it, it's pretty much like finding lambs in, in the wolf cage in, in the zoo. And so the effect of that was that within about a generation, each of the parties would choose their own set of electors and then decide how to choose them. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that means in the election, you know, the voters would be voting for George Washington or they'd be voting for John Adams. Well, they weren't. 
in the early days, what would happen would be the legislature would decide who those electors were. So when you elected your legislature, the legislature would then choose the electors, and the electors would then choose the president. It was a, it was a screwball system. I mean, for example, up to 1860, uh, the people of South Carolina never once voted for a president, and they never voted for a governor. That, they couldn't. The legislature chose those did people. Did that bother South Carolina? Uh, well, South Carolina is so squirrely that they probably found it a positive relief. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we apologize to South Carolina. That, that's, 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 that, 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 that's all right. It's lovely. It's just, it's just that South Carolina politics looks like the kind of place where, where Donald Trump would look normal. Right. I mean, it's, just really, it's, really, it's, it's really very, very bizarre. And, and so there really, there's really no two-party system there, all the way up to the Civil War. It doesn't exist, because for most of the offices you want to elect people for, there, there's, there's no way to elect them. Now, the way it could have been done, uh, and in fact up to, say, eight, the 1840s it was done, was in a bunch of states it wasn't winner-take-all. It was based on what proportion or share of the vote uh, your candidate for president got, which meant that, say, you'd have a state like, oh, I don't know, New York, and you'd have uh, you know, four electors going for William Crawford and about 18 electors going for Andrew Jackson and about 10 electors going for, for John Quincy Adams and then maybe a few leftovers going for Henry Clay because they'd forgotten which election it was. And, 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 so, and, and so it was a very, very helter-skelter kind of system that way. But the early political system isn't like ours. I mean, today, for example, uh, you vote for congressman in your district. I mean, what could be more natural than that? Or if you're in Philadelphia, you're a congressman in the next district. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. But up till 1842, congressmen in a lot of states were all sort of, you know, on, on the same slate. You vote for the whole slate of them, the way you would presidential electors. So you might have a state like, oh, say, Georgia, for example, or Indiana. And uh, if the Democrats win, uh, they win all nine, ten congressional seats, just like that, because of the top, those are the top people on the ticket. It didn't get turned into districts until Congress did that in, in 1842. I mean, so that's just the way it worked. In, in the impending election, uh -huh. and I mean that in the best way possible, mm -hmm. we have this idea that potentially at least one of the Republican candidates is suggesting that there might be an independent run. Sure. And so how would that work with the Electoral College if you have a Democratic candidate, a Republican candidate, an independent candidate, and let's just say that by some mm -hmm. freak of nature we end up with a Libertarian or a Green Party candidate or some sure. other party candidate besides just the two major parties yeah. vying for the presidency? Well, if you vote for an independent uh, party ticket, I'm sorry, you've just thrown your vote away. Uh, that, that's what's going to happen, that's all. So you don't foresee that, that the Electoral in, College no, that would support that? That independent ticket is going to have to get more votes than either of the major parties for it to win a single electoral vote. If it gets, say, you know, 25% uh, of the vote, which is a nice big chunk of votes out there for an independent party to get, but, say, the Democratic Party gets 26% of the votes, the Democratic Party gets everything, and the independent party gets Nothing. Zip. Zero. Which means that in large part, the real value of independent parties 
is to drain off votes from one of the major parties to cripple it so that it can't possibly win. So, so was that was that Ro Teddy Roosevelt's approach with the Bull Moose Party? What was his? No, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt, when he ran in 1912, he expected to win. He wanted to win. Mm -hmm. He wasn't trying to drain off Republican votes. He really thought that he represented the progressive Republicans, and they outnumbered everybody else. And in fact, he does, in the Electoral College, he comes in second, and the Republican Party comes in third. William Taft gets a total of eight electoral votes, which is virtually nothing right after the election. Somebody comes up to him, the White House says, well, anyway, he says, uh, Mr. Taft, at least I voted for you, and Taft says, shh, I wouldn't let it get around. Well, it's, you know, this is, you know, and, and that can happen every so often, but it's Awfully, awfully rare. You've got to have an organization. You've got to be able to get out the vote. Or be Teddy Roosevelt. Or be Teddy <laughs> Roosevelt. Somebody who's a former president who's got incredible charisma. Uh, or else or, or else, it's just absolutely hopeless. But, but third parties, most of the time, they end up getting nothing. Uh, if you're, and, and, that, and that's the frustration of it. And that's one reason why, all the way through American history, you know, very often you follow the money back from an independent party and you find some of its bankrolls coming from a major party that really knows that these guys are going to draw off votes from the guys that we really want to beat out there. So they're using it as a subversive strategy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're basically using it to sap and mine. That's what it is. See, but that's the thing here Stand is that it. we're trying, we're kind of getting at the point here that, uh -huh. yes, your vote counts, but it may not be as powerful as you think. So in order to tap into that power, uh -huh. what about things like... Uh, uh, you know, uh, um, a voting day where everyone, all of the workers get off of work. They have a day yeah. off and they federal can go on a federal uh -huh. holiday. Uh -huh. What about something like that? Mm -hmm. uh, has, has that happened in the past, anywhere in the world? Um, and is it has it been effective if so? Uh, uh, basically a day where everybody gets off work. It's, it's never been done in this country. People have to find a time to get off work uh, during their lunch hour or otherwise to vote. And one of the nice ways you can prevent them from voting is make sure that the voting hours for the polls are really short and really small uh, so that they don't have a chance to get there. And this is a lot worse back in the old days when, in fact, you're a farmer and you're going to have to travel 10 miles into town to get to your voting place. And that 10-mile trip with a horse and buggy is going to take you all day. And a lot of people just simply can't do that. It just doesn't happen. Uh, and, and so you basically cut out the votes that way. Or you can you can basically decide in the black neighborhoods you're not even going to open a polling place at all. So they have to go an immense long distance to get to a polling place somewhere else. Um, it's, a, it's a standard kind of technique, and it really does work. You can cut down... Oh, there's so many ways you can cut down on the vote. Back in the days when the parties would... Nowadays, we get used to the idea of a secret ballot. You, you, you pass in a ballot, maybe a paper ballot, you choose between options. Back in the 1800s, you couldn't do that. Back in the 1800s, each party passes out its own ballot. Now, this is good, because if you can't read, you can't write, you're illiterate, uh, you don't have to worry about what, what's written on that thing. You don't have to worry about who you're voting for. It's all done for you. All you have to do is fold that paper ballot and put it right in the slot. And it's really, really good we're getting a lot of voters out there who we can say have an appropriate 
Ayn Rand capitalist perspective, i.e. they're asking, what's in it for me? Well, I'll tell you what's in it for you. You get this shiny gold eagle dollar out there for voting right. Now, politicians aren't going to do that, and they're not going to buy people's votes that way if a person has a secret ballot, because you could take my money right away, and then you could go in and vote for who ever you like out there, and I wouldn't be able to trust it. Remember, I mean, the basic definition of honesty, as Senator Simon Cameron said, is an honest man who's, is one who, once he's bought, stays bought. Well, that's, exa <laughs> that's exactly the point. But with a paper ballot that the party passes out, you put that ballot in the person's hand. You pay them the money, and you know that that's the only ticket they can vote. And they're going to be able to vote the whole thing. Of course, the nice thing about paper ballots is you can deny people the vote on all kinds of tricks. For example, uh, for example, you want to try to you want to try to fool a lot of people that are Republicans, but don't read too well out there, or don't even read at all. You give them a paper ballot. It's good. It's got Abraham Lincoln's face on the top of it. It's a Republican ballot, but underneath what it says is. This certificate is good for one quart of rat poison at your local dealer. And they're going to put that in because they don't know better. And that, and that kind of thing happens. Or you can have a, it says, Republican ballot, and it says, and it has, say, the, the face of the Republican candidate out there. But the presidential electors out there are the Democratic electors because you don't know who your presidential electors are, do you? You don't know them by name. You don't realize that this is the case. Or you can do it even for very literate people. What you simply do is you pass out something that says Republican ballot, and you know a few of the names. So we go, oh, yeah, that's a Repu that guy's a Republican. Oh, that guy's a Republican. But you get down to electors number 10, 11, 12, and 13, and they're all Democrat, and you're voting for them. Oh, it's marvelous. Or you, can, or the other way you can do it, and it really worked that's wonderful with these paper ballots, is you pass out paper ballots that are absolutely word for word, the candidates for governor, for Congress, on the, say, the Republican ticket, the Democratic ticket, with one catch. You may have misspelled one of the names, or you may have forgotten to put an, an initial dot right after the J in somebody's name. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not a valid ballot. We have to cancel it out. I mean, it's, it's sort of a marvelous kind of way. And that's an example of why, in many cases, the guys that count the ballots can make all the difference in the world. Uh, here's a case, I mean, it's a case in, in, in Vermont back in the 1800s. Now, in Vermont, uh, you know, finding Democrats in Vermont was, was you know, well, I mean, you know, you'd be, you'd be, e you'd find it easier to find unicorns. You'd be, e you'd find it easier to find yaks riding the subway in New York City. <laughs> uh, it's just not there. And so you come to a Vermont town, and, and the vote, and the ballot box is opened up by the town clerk out there, and he comes across a Democratic ballot. Well, it's a little bit of surprise there, but not that much. And then he comes across a second Democratic ballot among the hundreds of Republican ballots. And so he says, okay, who put this in there? And nobody raises a hand. He tears up. He says, I thought there must be a mistake. There's only one Democrat in town. I mean, you can do that. It's sort of standard off out there. And he was probably right. There probably is only one Democrat in town. But, you know, that's, that's basically the way you can do it. And, and so the effect is that this whole principle of a secret ballot and everything else really depends on who's paying money for it and how the officials count people out. You know, one technique that is absolutely constitutional, absolutely legal, but it 
and it's something that you'd really hate to see happen, is you can, in fact, choose to an electoral college based on winner-take-all. You can choose it on proportional representation, but you can also do it another way. You could, for example, declare that each congressional district has a presidential elector for it. Uh, and that means that how that congressional district goes is how uh, the Electoral College goes. So if you had a state like Pennsylvania, which has an overwhelming Democratic majority because of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh in particular for president, but it has, you know, like a two to, or three to one uh, Republican margin in the House because the way they fiddled with the districts and turned them into shoestrings and abstract art like out of Jackson Pollock and so on, you could create a system where the vast majority of people in Pennsylvania want a Democrat for president, but the vast majority of the presidential electors vote Republican because they vote the way the congressional district did it. You could legally do that. And if you did that, essentially, you would disfranchise the vote of a majority. Now you say, who would do something as crazy and outlandish as that? That would be a travesty out there. Yeah, but it'd be a legal travesty. Who would do anything like that? Well, the Republicans actually in the legislature proposed such a bill and carried it partway along in 2012 before the, the ruckus got too loud. They could get away with that. They could do that. And the same thing could happen in a lot of other states the same way if you got, say, a Republican or a Democratic legislature and a Democratic or Republican uh, overall electorate, standard up. Uh, so is there any democracy left for the people? Right, so, oh, so yeah, this is, there's this democracy, is my follow-up question. Yeah. I mean, we came in here asking, does your vote count? We're mm -hmm. looking for democracy. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is that our democratic process, our electorate process, whether it's presidential or local, we're mm -hmm. caught between citizens wanting to cast this vote for democracy mm -hmm. and participate in this democratic system that we mm -hmm. really believe in, mm -hmm. and then politicians not always wanting to be the best politician, but possibly, and by politician I mean the best mm -hmm. leader, Sure. but perhaps being the best at getting elected, Oh yeah. which is not the same thing. Which means... And so it sounds to me like we're caught between I want to participate in democracy and then the business of getting elected, which I think we saw that a lot with George Wallace, who was mm -hmm. much happier when he was running for office than when he was actually in office. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, obviously the politicians really are out to get elected, and that's the most important thing. And if that means fiddling with who can vote or how they can vote or residency requirements, that's something that they're likely and eager to do. You can find all kinds of ways to do this. You can say that college students can't vote on their college campuses. You can make it hard to file absentee ballots or, in fact, not file them at all. Out there, you can make limit. You, you can require people to show driver's licenses when you know a lot of the people don't or can't drive. You can disfranchise people because of some criminal conviction in the past out there and do it quite deliberately, knowing the people you're disfranchising don't belong to uh, your political party anyway. There's all kinds of ways to rig the system. That doesn't mean that what we have isn't a democracy. It is. And your vote eventually 
can and probably does count to some extent. But there's a lot of qualifiers. Yeah, there, there are a lot of qualifiers. But it's not it's not pure, honest to goodness democracy. Uh, it's not a democracy where everyone has the chance to vote or is encouraged to vote or can find a way to get to the polls. And in fact, most Americans usually don't vote. Uh, some of them don't vote out of personal choice. Oh, I never vote for candidates. It only encourages them. Uh, but, you know, uh, other people, it, it's not like that. I mean, it's they would like to vote. They simply can't get around the hurdles, and the hurdles are put there quite deliberately. My feeling is that just about everybody not only uh, should vote, uh, I think they should be obligated to vote. I think they should be mandated by law to require them to show up and vote. Even if on the ballot you had some kind of place to, where you could put none of the above and check that off. But it ought to be there because, in fact, the disfranchisement of Americans really means that the election process is desperately skewed against the poorer and the more unpropertied in society. And with money, it's desperately skewed toward the rich. So, to kind of bring this to a close, uh -huh. make a pitch. You've got okay. all of these people listening right now. Uh-huh. With all of the problems we've encountered with the fact that we're saying that, yes, democracy is there, but how mm -hmm. limited is it? With all of these qualifiers to my vote, et cetera, why should I go vote? Why should you go vote? Go vote because people fought and died and bled to have it happen, uh, to allow you the chance to vote. Vote because in a lot of things, local races, congressional races, senatorial races, your vote can count. And vote also because the larger vote your party gets, even if it doesn't win, the more the politicians out there get the message that there are people that are disgruntled and people that are going to give them trouble. That's why you vote. But most of all, you vote because this is your way of reaffirming your, your, your part in American democracy. If you vote, maybe your vote won't count as much as you'd like. If you don't vote, then you might as well just not grouse for the next four years because where were you when you were needed? Where were you when a choice came where you could have at least expressed your opinion in some kind of political way? There's so many countries in the world where either you can't vote or where the returns could be announced even before the election takes place out there. Standard operating procedure out there uh, in, in a lot of places. We at least have a political process like that. And if the voting process is weakened, if it's flawed, it doesn't change the fact that these are things we should press and fight to try to change, to make it a democracy as good as its people. I mean, that, that simple as that. Dr. Summers is the liveliest of instructors. This fall, he's teaching history of the U.S. through 1876 and frontier America 1400 to 1869. His most recent book, The Ordeal of the Reunion, A New History of Reconstruction, was published by the University of North Carolina Press last fall. Long Story Short is a joint production of the Department of History and the Arts and Sciences Hive. Today's show was produced by Cody Foster and Dara Vance and hosted by myself, David Cole. Special thanks to Tracy Campbell, Mark Cornblue, Brian Connors, Mankey, Casey Hibbert, and Cheyenne Homan, and of course, 
Thank you for listening. Okay? I love it.